good morning, Westmount. And it is indeed a great love with which God loves us. And I do hope that we reflect on that and we feel the love of God as we embark on a new year, as he has taken us this far into the end of this year, and all the, that he has done for you, for me, that we can't but praise and honor and adore him for that. It's a privilege again to be here as we reflect and we'll continue with our worship as we spend some time in the word of God, looking at the last few verses in 1 John chapter 4, 13 through to 21. The assurance, or the word assurance, in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, we are reminded of the assurance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ by Paul. It's a word that means faith, or is rendered faith according to Acts 17.31, or a pledge that God has given that his revelation as he reveals them to us, are true, and they're worthy of acceptance. Full assurance or full bearing of faith, as we see in Hebrews 10, verse 22, is the fullness of faith in God, which leaves no room, no room for doubt whatsoever. So there is no room for doubt with this full assurance of faith, full assurance of understanding, Colossians 2 verse 2, is an entire unwavering conviction of truth or of the truth of the declarations of the Word of God or of Scripture. So we are 100% certain and assured that what God has written and given us in His Word are sure and are true a joyful, a steadfastness on the part of any one of the conviction that is grasped from God's word. And then we have full assurance of hope, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. And this is a sure and well-grounded expectation of eternal glory. We've heard of that this morning from David who reminded us that We are not home. We are just passing through, and the best is yet to come. So the full assurance of our hope is that well-grounded expectation. Again, that absolute certainty that we will one day be with Christ, be in glory, eternal glory, with him. This assurance of hope is the assurance of, of man's own, our own salvation. This infallible assurance which believers may attain as their own personal salvation is founded nowhere else apart from the word of God. It's God's grace and mercy towards us as we have seen over and over and time and time again in his word, in the scriptures, it's a testimony of the spirit 
of adoption that we see in Romans 8.16, that we are called His, we belong to Him, and that we can be certain of, that we can be assured of. Such certainty may be attained, or that such certainty may be attained appears from testimonies of Scripture, and there are multiple passages Again, Romans 8.16, where Paul reminds us that we are sons of God. 1 John 2, verse 3. 1 John 3, verse 14 is another passage. We know that we have passed from death to life, or death into life. Why? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. The full assurance is necessary for saving faith, or it's not necessary for saving faith. It's not an essence of saving faith. But this assurance, the assurance of our future glory, the assurance that we can stand firm and say we belong to Jesus Christ, this assurance is due to the fact that we have faith in Christ. It is a result of our faith in Jesus Christ. Genuine assurance naturally leads to a legitimate and abiding peace and joy and love and thankfulness towards God for all that He has done for us. For many of us, this assurance may vary in different ways. This assurance can be shaken. This assurance can be diminished. It can be intermitted. But the principle on which it stands and from which it springs is forever. It never, it's never lost. Continuing on the theme of love, John continues on that theme. More specifically, God's infinite love for his own. own. We are assured in verses 13 to 21 of this love. We saw in verses 7 to 12 that God is the foundation of love. He is the source of love. That's his nature. That's his being. That's who he is. He does not possess love. He is love. And our love for him and our love for others, our love for the brothers and sisters in Christ, for our neighbors, finds its root in the love that God has for us. This love was confirmed, we saw again, chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. This love, God confirmed this love to us. He demonstrated or showcased this love for us. How? By sending Jesus Christ, sending His only begotten Son, His one unique Son, to die that cruel death And with God's love, folks, with God's love comes a plethora of assurances. We have so many assurances from God's Word because of the love He has for us. And we will explore a few of these from this text this morning. And of course, the list doesn't stop here, but we'll just look at a few. 1 John chapter 4, verse 13, By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, 
Because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love of, that God has for us. God is love. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has n- has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love God. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In this, and this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brothers. Father, we ask that you'll take your words and implant, implant them in our minds, in our hearts. May we reflect, Father God, and what they have to say to us. And not just reflect, Father God, but put them into practice. I pray that you open the hearts and the minds of every individual here. That you speak to us freely through your word, Lord. Give me boldness and clarity of speech. God, may we again take away distractions and the cares of this life that we've gone through this year, this week, and focus our attention on you, for Christ's sake. Amen. The assurance of God's love. Of course, verse 13, we saw, begins with the phrase, this is how we know. It's a phrase that John uses quite often in the book. If you, are read, if you have read it and you are following, you've been following the sermon series, he uses this term a lot. And of course, he uses we know because he's, of course, refuting and debating against the Gnostic teaching who has a different viewpoint of knowing and knowledge. And he says, we have come to know. This is how we know. He used this word, verse, chapter 2, verse 3. This is how we are sure that we have come to know him. Chapter 2, verse 5b. This is how we know we are in him. Chapter 3, verse 10. This is how God's children and the devil's children are made evident. So John gives a distinction there that you can know. You can know. Chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life. Chapter 3, verse 19. This is how we will know we belong to the truth. 324. 
and the way we know him, he rem- and this is how we know that he remains in us. Chapter 4, verse 2. This is how you know the Spirit of God. And the list goes on. He uses this term frequently. But John wants his readers. Why is he using this term so often? He wants his readers. He wants us to know. He wants us to be assured of many things and all the things that he's writing about. He wants us, he wants the readers at this point in time to know that they abide in God and that God abides in them. He wants them to be assured of that truth. He wants them to be assured that God has granted them, God has given them this Holy Spirit, which is the first point, the assurance of the Comforter. He wants them to be assured of this. And as we get into this first point, again, this list isn't exhaustive. This isn't everything that needs to be said and is written about the Holy Spirit of God from Scripture. But I'm just going to lay forth a few things as we focus on the assurance of the Comforter that God has given us, as we see in verse 13. He has given us His Spirit. He has given us the Holy Spirit. And who is the Holy Spirit? Isaiah 40, verse, verse 13. Isaiah forty thirteen. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or to what man shows him counsel? Shows him his counsel. In Psalm 139, that passage David talks about, he can't escape in from the presence of God. In Psalm 139, verse 7, to be precise. Where shall I go, David asked, where shall I go from your spirit? Or to where shall I flee from your presence? Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? And if we hop over to the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. First Corinthians two twelve. Now we have now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. So who is this Holy Spirit? And there are many other verses that I could draw out to you. But what these verses are telling us is this. The Holy Spirit, the comforter that we can be assured of is God. He is God. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, He is God. John chapter 14 verses 16 and 17 not only reminds us that the Spirit was sent 
by God the Father through Christ Jesus. But the verse, apart from being, of course, Trinitarian in nature, speaks of another comforter like Jesus Christ. Jesus told his disciples, look, I'm going away. And, of course, they'd be devastated, like, man, really? And he said, look, I'm not leaving you comfortless. I'm, I am going to send another comforter. And he will guide you. I'm going to send another counselor. I'm going to send another advocate. I'm going to send another who defends your cause. I'm going to send another who has the very attributes like myself and God the Father who is in heaven. I am going to send you the Holy Spirit who is going to be your helper, who is going to be your encourager, who is going to be your mediator, who is going to be the one who convicts sins and convince the world, convince the believers of who Jesus Christ is. I am sending another just like who I am. He's going to be God, very God, just like I am God, like God the Father is God. The Comforter, the, the, the Holy Spirit of God resides in you and I. He indwells us. And this, folks, is permanent. It's not temporary. It's not for a season while we are here on earth in terms of momentarily or day by day. He indwells us permanently until the day of redemption. For all those who have been placed in Christ Jesus, he permanently resides in the believers. We see this in Romans chapter 8 verse 9. And of course, John 14, verse 16, the passage I just referenced. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you when? How long? Forever. Through the Holy Spirit, through God's Spirit, through the Comforter, you and I are sealed until the day of redemption. That is, you are marked as the possession of God. You are marked as belonging to Jesus Christ. You're God's possession. You are Christ and you are in Christ. All the promises, all the promises that God has made for you, especially those for future are guaranteed. They are assured. And that, folks, is assurance. The Spirit guarantees that. Why are you a part of the family of God? Why are you a part of this local assembly? Why are you a part of the universal church? Why are you a part of the family of God? Why can you, as a believer, cry to God intimately and say, Abba, Father, how do you come to understand the Word of God as you read it more and more? It is the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. The Comforter. He places us, He places you and I into the family of God through Spirit baptism. It is He who, t who testifies that you and I are children of God. And when you and I don't know how to properly pray, as we saw again in Romans chapter 8, where we don't know how to pray properly, 
The Spirit's help us. The Holy Spirit helps us with groanings that are too deep for words. The Holy Spirit of God gives us gifts to serve one another, to build each other up, to build the body of Christ up. He is the life-giving Spirit, according to John chapter 6, verse 63. He is the Spirit that empowers us, Deuteronomy 3.39, Numbers 27.18. And of course, we saw that this Holy Spirit of God led Jesus Christ, Mark 3.16, when he was being tempted by the devil. It's the Holy Spirit that purifies He provides and produces growth in holiness of life. And this, folks, this is how you and I become more and more like Jesus Christ. It is through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit of God within us. He's working in us to produce the fruits of the Spirit that we read about in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, faithfulness. Gentleness. And why are these traits special? Because they reflect the character trait of God in you. God the Holy Spirit is in you. Working in you to produce Godness. Not goodness. Godness, the Holy Spirit of God is in you, working in you to produce godness. God does provide, Westmill. God does provide. He provides sanctification. He provides salvation. And He provides security through the Spirit of God. That's the Spirit's assurance. You, believer, with absolute certainty, with certitude, can say with assurance, because of the Comforter, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, I am God's child. You can say that with absolute certainty. You can say, I am in Christ Jesus and He in me. You can say that with absolute certainty. God abides in me and me in Him. You can cry out to God personally, intimately, whenever, wherever. And as a result, we live wholeheartedly through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. You surrender yourselves. You and I must surrender ourselves to his leading and not the leading of the flesh because you have been purchased with a great price and you do not belong to yourself. You are not your own. You belong to Jesus Christ. Your body is his temple. And therefore, believers, you ought to glorify God through His Spirit living in you. That's the assurance we have about the Comforter. God gave us His Spirit who permanently indwells us, 
upon salvation. He places us at that very moment in the body of Jesus Christ and says, you are his, you belong to Christ. Seals us until the day of redemption, until that glorious day that David was talking about when God was going to gather his people to himself. What an assurance. What an assurance. John goes on, verses 14 and 15, to talk about the assurance of our confession. And we have seen and have testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. So whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in Him and He in God. Remember when we just started this study some long time ago, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, we saw that word appear, confess, in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So just a refresher here, a reminder, confession is saying the same thing or agreeing with God or with what God has said about us regarding sin, about us regarding salvation. In this context, it is saying the same thing or agreeing with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit and God's Holy Word, His Holy Scripture, and by default, the apostles, all that they have said about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We are not confessing something new. This has been from the beginning. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. We're confessing the humanity of Jesus Christ. We are just coming out of that season where we celebrated Jesus Christ coming into this world. The God-man, the God himself, took on flesh, come into this world. That's who we confess. We confess he was not just a mere man. He wasn't an ordinary man. He wasn't an extraordinary man. He was the God-man. And this confession is absolutely essential to the Christian faith. And the denial of this truth, this profound truth, is by default a denial of Jesus Christ, or salvation of, that comes through Christ. The apostles' faith was based on first-hand experience. John, as you saw, used the word here, and he used it in verse 1, we or in chapter 1, sorry, we, stating that they proclaim and they are proclaiming what they have seen, what they have heard. They testify that God the Father did indeed. This wasn't something speculative. They didn't hear it through the channels of the, 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 like that game, the telephone game. They didn't hear it from this ancient of days in terms of a human being that was 200 years before them and it passed down. They saw, they were eyewitnesses. 
they testified that God, indeed, God without any shadow of a doubt, did send his son, Jesus Christ, into this world to be the savior of this world. And this is the heart of the matter. Jesus Christ is, folks, indeed God. And indeed the Son of God, sent by God the Father, sent to be the Savior of mankind, accomplished through the excruciating death of the cross, buried, rose again victoriously, ascended, and is now highly exalted Lord of all. Undeniable. And that, folks, is who we confess. And that, folks, we confess with absolute assurance and certainty. The apostles seeing Christ meant they were taking an, in, a, a, an attentive, rather, sorry, contemplative look on these events. And not only were this, this uh, an intent and a contemplative look, But this had a significant, in fact, an eternal impact on their lives. When they saw Jesus Christ, the one whom they confessed, the one that God sent into this world, and they saw the life he lived, the death he died, and that he rose victoriously, that transformed the lives of the apostles for eternity. And that transforms our lives. And that's the only thing that will ever transform lives. The resurrected Christ. The Christ that is prescribed and described for us in the Word of God. It brought an impact. It brought a change on their lives. And the thing is, it made it impossible. I apologize for the wiping of the nose constantly. I, was, I had a rough week, a, a very, very bad week. It was very doubtful I would be even standing here this morning to proclaim the word of God to you. But by his grace and his mercy, I'm here. So please forgive me for that. But when the apostles look at Christ, It made it impossible for them to not testify about Jesus Christ. When they read about the Christ that is presented in Scripture as the Son of God, they cannot but confess Jesus Christ to the world. And we've seen that. We go to Acts, the early days in Acts, where Peter and John healed this man, this lame man that was lame for years. And the religious leaders like, look, man, you guys can preach and do whatever you want. Just stop talking about Jesus Christ. And Peter's resolve was what? Well, you guys have the power, so message received. No. Look, do whatever you want. But we will not stop preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. Do whatever you want. We are willing to die for this. They could not but speak of that. The life and the work of Christ has left 
an indelible mark in their minds. And they were always ready, always ready to give an answer for the eternal hope that is within them. The verbs bear witness and has sent are in the present tense. And this indicates an habitual, a, a, a habitual and continual action. Now, obviously, John isn't saying God is constantly sending Jesus Christ into the world. That was a once-for-all thing. Of course, he's coming again, the second coming, and we eagerly anticipate that. And we'll hear more of that in time to come. But bearing witness of Jesus Christ is not just a one-time action, and that's the idea here. It's a continual thing. It's an ongoing thing. It's something that is costly. It's more than just reciting a creed or reciting a confession. It was very costly for the believers in the first century A.D. And it is very costly to the persecuted church today. And it is becoming very costly here in the West. This confession is a public declaration of who Jesus Christ truly is. It is confessing Jesus as the sovereign potentate, the one whom full loyalty is due. So what is the assurance of your confession? And I do pray that this is your continual, daily, confident confession of who Jesus Christ is to this sin-diseased world. Westmount, I pray that you confess, like John did, like the apostles did, like the saints of old did, that Jesus Christ is the revealed word of life. 1 John 1, verse 1. That Jesus Christ brought eternal life. 1 John 1, 2. That Jesus Christ is the only one that cleanses us from all sins. 1 John 1, verse 7. That Christ is our advocate. 1 John 2, verse 1. Jesus Christ is the one who propitiates our sins. He's the one who makes God fully satisfied with the action and the word that he did on the cross. Jesus Christ gives us an example to follow. Jesus Christ is the sent one. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus makes the new birth a reality. Jesus Christ is the righteous and the sinless Son of God, the perfect Lamb, the spotless Lamb. Jesus Christ is the only one that can take away our sins. Jesus Christ is the only one that can destroy and have destroyed the works of the devil, 1 John 3.8. Jesus Christ is the sacrificial Lamb of God. And He gives us life. 
Folks, that is the assurance that we have in the love of God. All these things are possible because God so loved us. All these things are only possible because God loved us so much to send his one and only son to suffer and die for us. That is our assurance. And that, folks, is what we need to confess To all this, of course, we must shout hallelujah. What a Savior. What a Savior. This is the Savior that the Father sent. This is the Savior that we confess to the world. It is the world who needs to hear this. They need to hear about this Savior. The one as prescribed and presented in God's Word. Not the one that we fabricate with our, with our imagination and in our minds. Not the one that we are tailor-made to everything that's going on out there in the world. No, Jesus Christ crucified. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus Christ, who bore the sins on the cross, who took on flesh. We are commissioned and we are compelled to confess The real Jesus Christ. And there is only one Christ. Son of God. We are compelled to proclaim that. So when they, when the world, hear us confidently proclaiming Christ, they too, they too folks will come to that saving knowledge. They too will come to the point where they have the assurance that God has promised eternal life, eternal hope. They too will come to the point where they, their hearts are transformed from hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. New hearts, new birth occurs. And the cycle of this assured confession continues until our Savior returns. That's the assurance of our confession. It is Jesus Christ who God sent into this world to die for our sins. And of course, with Christ at the helm, Christ our foundation, with the Holy Spirit of God indwelling us, God the Father who has lavished his love for us and towards us and demonstrated that, With this comes confidence. With this comes confidence. Verses 16 to 18. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we also in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The American painter... John Sorgent once painted a panel of roses 
This was highly praised by critics. It was a small picture, but it approached perfection. Although offered a high price for this painting on many occasions, John refused to sell the picture. He considered it his best work, and he was very proud of this painting. So whenever he was deeply discouraged, when he was deep in doubt of his artistic abilities, he would look at this very painting and remind himself, I painted that. Then his confidence and ability would come back to him. In a similar fashion, when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, unlike John whose confidence came from self, when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we can say with absolute certainty, God did that for me. God did that for me. God did that to prove how much he loved me. And because of that proof, I have absolute confidence in his love for me. And as a seal of approval, he gave us, he gave me, he gave you his spirit. God's love for you, believer, God's love for you should never ever be a question in your minds. The evidence for that is crystal clear. The evidence for the love that God has for you is overwhelming. And the more you and I grow in love for God, so in other words, the more you and I grow to love God, the more we will come to the realization and the more God's love for us will become evident in our lives. It will be like somebody turned the light on and we say, wow, that's how much God loves me. That's how much he loves me. But also, the more we grow to love God, the more we grow to love each other. We have come to this knowledge. We have come to know and still know. We have come to believe and still believe. That's what John is saying in those verses. It's not... I believe this once upon a time, and now I'm not too certain about that. I knew it back then, but now, not so sure. John said that we come to know, and we still know, the love that God has for us. I come to believe, and we still believe in the love that God has for us. Confidence in God's love. But we also have confidence in the future. Perfect love is evident in us, in our love for one another. That's one aspect of perfect, our love perfected. 
but it's also seen in how we view the future. When you and I remain in God's love, it gives us boldness. It gives us confidence to face the future. Not just the future here on earth, although that is applicable, but the future that is to come. Remember in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, what did John say? Just flip over, and I, by way of reminder. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence, there's that word, and not shrink, not shrink from him in shame of his coming. We are reminded that the one who has put his faith in Jesus Christ, the sacrificial work of Christ on the cross, such an individual will by no means be ashamed. This individual will not shrink. This individual will not be afraid of the appearing of Jesus Christ. No, on the contrary, we look in eager anticipation for the return of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. This day is coming, folks. He is coming again. That is an absolute certainty. That we can again rest assured in. Jesus spoke vividly of the day of judgment. In fact, interestingly, the word for hell which is Gehenna, well, one of the words for hell, Gehenna in the New Testament, is used 12 times in the New Testament. 12 times. James uses it in James 3, verse 6. Guess who uses, used it the other 11 times? Jesus Christ. 11 times out of the 12, Jesus Christ used that word. We ought to be on watch, folks. Our confidence in our future glory, our confidence that drives away fear, does not mean we should not be watchful. Again, we're commanded to be on watch, be on guard. We ought to be ready. We ought to be living with that eager expectation of the coming of Jesus Christ, that he could burst through the clouds at any moment. But Christians, we ought to be confident about his return. Because he is in us and we are in him. John MacArthur says it. This stunning statement in verse 17 of 1 John 4 means that the Father, here's why, folks. Do you, do, if you were doubtful of Jesus Christ's return or lacking in confidence of some sort, I hope this brings some assurance to you. It means the Father treats the saints the same way He does the Son, Jesus Christ. God clothes believers with the righteousness of Christ, Piper says, or MacArthur says, sorry, and He grants the Son's perfect love and obedience. Someday, one glorious day, believers will stand before God's throne as confidently as Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior, does. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that boldly and confident when they reach 
that final accounting, they will see, they will come, we will come to an understanding of what John meant in 1 John 3 verse 2. We believers know that when he, Jesus Christ, appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We don't have to shrink about the future because of who we are in Christ, what he has done for us. This confidence drives away all fears. And as we saw earlier, one of the works of the Spirit is empowering the believers. And one way in which this occurs is boldness in our confession of Jesus Christ, as I referred to in Acts with Peter and John. We saw this boldness in the lives of the apostles. We saw this boldness in the first century saints. And we see, we see this boldness Daily, especially in the persecuted church. Boldness despite dread and terror. God's love perfected in believers. It cast out all fears. There is no fear in this life. We don't need to fear anything in this life, believer. We don't. Because of the love that God has for us. There's absolutely nothing that you can think of on this planet right now or in the universe or even in the angelic realm that should cast fear and anxiety in your life because of who we are in Jesus Christ and because of the love of God that he has for us. We don't need to be in dread and fear from the one who has rescued us from the pits of hell. Well, let me say this. On the other hand, if you're here, you're not saved. You're not a believer. You are not in Christ. You should fear. You should fear. Christ said in John chapter 3 verse 18, Whoever believe in him or whoever believe in me is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You should fear. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It should strike terror into you. And I urge you, if you're here and you're not saved, surrender your lives to Jesus Christ. Surrender your lives to him. And you too will have this confidence of the assured hope in him. But for us, for believers, God's infinite love for us, his redeemed love for us, our redeeming love for us, for his own, annihilates the power of fear. It annihilates it. There is nothing in this life that we should fear. The wrath of God, the judgment of God is a thing that should be feared the most. 
And since his wrath was poured out on his one unique son on our behalf, on your behalf, and since, like Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, what have you to fear? What have you to fear? What have you to dread? Nothing. Fear robs you of the joy the joy you have in Christ. We have seen that. Don't need to mention the last three years. But even before that, even beyond that fear, you see Christians gripped by fear and it robs you of the joy. It robs you of the joy. And it distorts our image and our view of who God really is. And how we actually put confidence and trust in Him. There's nothing to fear. Nothing. We should have confidence and be assured of that confidence. Is God's love guarantee it? Fourth and final point. No time is failing here. The assurance of our conduct. So we saw the assurance of the comforter. God's love through his love gave us another who is going to indwell us, who is indwelling us, the Holy Spirit. Assurance of our confession. We confess the one who God proved that he loves us by sending Jesus Christ. And God's love gives us assurance of confidence, but it also should give us assurance of our conduct. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has not seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. Basic logic John's using there. Straightforward. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loved God must also love the brothers. Remember, again, a long time ago, I pointed out that our conduct towards others reflects and affects our conduct towards God and vice versa. So whatever relationship we have going on, God to us, us to God, that's going to reflect this. And whatever relationship we have here, that's going to reflect this. And that is abundantly clear throughout John's writing thus far. It's not one way. It's not, oh, all that matters is my relationship with God. I don't, it doesn't matter here. No, it matters. It really matters. So to show that we have the right conduct towards God, we love. And here it is again that we love God, we must show that we love the brothers and sisters in Christ. Such a profound verse, verse 19. Yet so simple, yet so difficult at the same time. We love because He first loves us. It's plain, it's straightforward. Okay, we show love, we exhibit love, we distribute our, our demonstrate love because God loves us. But yet it is so hard, and this isn't even the end of John's spiel 
and loving the brothers and the love that we have for God. We'll see that again next week, the beginning of chapter 5. He's not done yet. Here's an assurance of a wrong conduct. And I pray to God that we, none of us sitting here, has this assurance of this wrong conduct. If you profess, so with your lips, I love God. But you practice your actions, say, I don't love the brothers. John, plain and simple, no hidden truth, no deep secret meaning here. You are a liar. You are a liar because there's no way for you to say you love God that you've never seen and your brothers and sisters that you've seen every single day, a Sunday or every single week, you don't love. John said that contradicts natural logic. It's not logical. So if your profession doesn't match your practice, John saying that is the wrong conduct. But the assurance of the right conduct is seen in verse 21. This is a commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God also must love the brothers and sisters in Christ. So you profess it and you practice it through loving the brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the commandment from Christ, John states. The commandment from Christ. Mark 20, Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 to 39, known as the great commandment. And it shouldn't be treated as the great idea. And this is the text where Jesus said, This is how you live. These are the great commandments. You love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. You love your neighbor as yourself. And these two commandments, which is why theologians deem it the great commandment, all the law, the prophets, and the writings hinge. It's amazing that our love for God is interwoven with our ability to love others. We have seen God's love on full display for us. God's infinite love. And we are assured of that love. Well, one way for us believers to display our love to God, this is what John is saying, is that we love each other. That's where we demonstrate our love. Just like how God demonstrated his love, he didn't just say it, he proved it. Considering this truth through the power of Christ, the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, let us love assuredly the God who has loved us infinitely. The God whom we have not seen by loving those who have been born of God. That is the assurance of our conduct. Loving God by loving the ones who are born of God. Our actions often are determined by our identity. Who we are and 
who we think we are. John wants us to be loving. He wants us to show action. But first, he wants us to know that we are loved as those who abide in God through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Have you taken time to reflect on who you are in Christ? Based on the infinite love that God has for you, have you taken time to reflect on that? Have you stopped to consider some of the magnificent ways you have been blessed and loved by God? Have you stopped and reflected on that? As we close, let us meditate on just a few. Through Christ, I am dead to sin. Romans 6.11 Through Christ, I am spiritually alive. Again, Romans 6.11 1 Corinthians 15.22 Through Jesus Christ, I am forgiven. You are forgiven. Through Christ, I am declared to be righteous. Through Christ, I am a child of God. Through Jesus Christ, I am God's possession. I am His. Through Christ, I am blessed with all spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Through Jesus Christ, I am a citizen. Here it is again. David took us through this. So profoundly this morning, I am a citizen of heaven. Our citizenship is so certain. Paul says, I am already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That is through Christ. That is the love of God, folks. Through Christ, I am free from the law. Through Jesus Christ, I am crucified with him. Through Christ, I am heir of God. I am free from the desires of the flesh. I am declared blameless and innocent, Philippians 2.15. I am the light of the world, Matthew 5.14 and 15. I am victorious through Jesus Christ over Satan. I am cleansed from sin. I am set free from the power of sin. I am secure in Jesus Christ. I am at peace with God. I am loved by God. Through Jesus Christ. That's an impressive list. That's a supernatural list. It's a list that reveals the power of the Spirit. And the power of the love that God has for us. The infinite love that God has for us. By sending His Son into this world. Do you have that assurance this afternoon, Westmount? Are you so certain, absolute certain, of the love that God has for you? I pray, I trust that you are assured that God loves you. He loves you so much. He sent you His Spirit. He loves you so much. He gives you confidence in confessing the Son that He demonstrated His love through. He loves you so much that he said, look, I'm coming back, but don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. Don't shrink away because you are in me through my son, Jesus Christ. 
And that love propels us to live and act in a manner that is worthy of God's love. They demonstrate that we too are loved, are, are love God by showing that we love each other, showing that we love the world. That's God's infinite love assured to us. Father, may you give us the grace and help us, Lord, to continue to reflect on these truths for Christ's sake. Please stand now as we close with blessed assurance. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. of God born of his spirit washed in his blood this is my story this is my song praising my Savior all the day long this is my story
one of my favorite hymns, Blessed Assurance, Jesus indeed is mine. As we leave, I want to end with a familiar passage of Scripture, Jude's doxology, ending on that assurance note. And I pray as we leave, you go and take these words and own them as your own. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. May you be strengthened by these words. And if you're here and you're struggling with whatever burdens and cares, Jason, Carey, and Brenda will be here at the front. Please avail yourselves to them. And they would love to pray with you, love to pray for you. If you're not saved and you felt God's convicting power on you, again, see them and, and they'll be happy, be delighted to show you from God's word how to get saved and to surrender your life to Christ. For the rest of you, may you go in the grace of God and continue to grow in his grace. God bless you.